I purposely timed our sermon series to be on a Christmas text today. One, because it meant that I didn't have to interrupt my flow of Isaiah, um, but two, it just honestly ended up working out well. And the most important reason, though, is that I wanted to take some time to really dig into a pretty common and well-known Christmas prophecy, and that is the virgin birth. That is the text we will be looking at. We will be looking at Isaiah 7, 1 through 9, 7. I know there's a lot of verses. I will not be covering every individual verse in detail, but my goal is to help us understand the context. And as Kurt mentioned, um, when he said he was excited about it, there are some difficulties here. And the difficulties relate to not only the historical context, uh, but also the genre and the context of how it fits in the story of Scripture and the story of Isaiah and the story of Judah. And there are also difficulties in simply how prophecy works. I am not guaranteeing by any means that I am going to answer every question today, so I apologize in advance for that. Uh, But my hope is that we can understand a bit better the context that the original prophecy was given and what Matthew is doing with it when he uses it in Matthew chapter 1. So with that being said, let's get started with seven, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first couple of verses, and then we'll talk about what's going on here. So Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as, with, as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. These first two verses are the historical context. And if you read them real quick, you're like, whoa, that's a lot of names in a lot of places. And where on earth are we in history? So we first need to set the stage of where we are and what's going on and why, why the fear. What, what is this invasion that's being talked about? Chapter 6 If you go back to the immediate previous chapter, chapter 6, Isaiah's call to ministry, it had had opened with, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So that's when Isaiah's call to ministry was. And then immediately after that call, which ends at the end of chapter 6, he's now letting us know that we are jumping forward in history. So now we open up chapter 7 with, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So now this is Uzziah's grandson. So we have skipped forward a few years. I mentioned um, over the last couple weeks that Jotham, besides this reference here and a couple of the times where he's just mentioned kind of in passing as the father of somebody, he is actually not really dealt with at all in the book of Isaiah. So we basically skip past him. He co-ruled with Uzziah for a few years at the end of his life because of choices that Uzziah had made that caused him to end up having to live in isolation because God had given him a skin disease for his pride that he had tried to go into the temple and do things he shouldn't have been doing. Um, and then, so he and Jotham co-ruled for a few years. Jotham ruled on his own for a very short period of time. We're not sure exactly, um, following the history, but anywhere from like three to six years, probably, on his own. So very short reign, and then you're already in Ahaz, who had a longer reign, and did a lot of things that made this timeline and storyline of the Bible, for various reasons, usually not good. Um, but Ahaz is the one that we're now talking about. So then you have Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah. Um, so these two people, Rezin the king of Syria and Pekah the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, these are the two nations that are, well, two of um, nations that are immediately north 
of Judah. So you have Israel that's right above them, and then Syria that's like right by Israel. And these two nations were seeking to take advantage of the fact that Assyria was currently occupied with problems elsewhere in the empire. And they are seeking to form an alliance, or sorry, they had formed an alliance together. So Syria and Israel are already allied together. They are seeking to force Judah into this alliance as well with them. Now, if you know Ahaz's story, it's kind of interesting because he, one of the things that we're told about him in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is that he basically followed after the practices and the idolatry of Israel and the surrounding nations. One thing he did not agree with them on, though, is their view of Assyria. He did not agree in forming an alliance. He did not agree in rebelling against Assyria. In fact, we'll find out as we keep going, he actually purposely set himself up as basically a vassal and a servant of the Assyrian Empire and asked for their help a lot. So he and Israel and the surrounding nations agreed about like idolatry and their corrupt practices that they were doing, but the, their relationship with Assyria was not something they agreed on, which is what you have coming into this context here. So again, Israel and Syria had formed an alliance seeking to take advantage of the fact that Assyria was currently dealing with rebellions elsewhere in the empire over off to the east. Um, so they're taking advantage of this and, um, again, seeking to force Judah into this alliance. Assyria had already taken parts of, of Syria and Israel. Sorry for the confusion, by the way, of Assyria and Syria. Um, but Assyria, the empire, had already taken parts of Syria and Israel a few years earlier. So they were forming an alliance together to seek to prevent further loss from the Assyrian Empire. And then we also know from 2 Kings 15 through 16 and 2 Chronicles 28 that these two kings separately had already been attacking Judah since the end of Jotham's reign. So again, Jotham is Ahaz's father. So since the time of his father, probably near the end of Jotham's life, which again was a very short reign, um, but during the last couple years of his reign, Syria and Israel had already been pestering Judah and had already taken cities and deported people, and there had been a lot of destruction that already happened because of these two. Now, after they've been kind of pestering Judah and taking things away from them separately, now they've formed an alliance to attack Jerusalem itself, the capital of Judah. Because so far, based on the kind of storyline from the other books, it seems like they've been attacking the outlying areas and the surrounding region of Judah. Now they've actually formed an alliance to attack Judah itself, or Jerusalem itself. At this news, in verse 2, we read, When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim is a short way of saying Israel. Ephraim is like kind of the main tribe there that it's known for. Um, Syria and Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What's interesting is that as we're talking about this fear that Ahaz and the people have, what's actually going on in the Hebrew here isn't quite shown in the ESV. So start in two, it starts when the house of David was told. That is how Ahaz is referred to, the house of David or the line of David. In other words, the royal line, the line that had been given the promises to David that his throne would be established forever and one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. The house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. And then we read in the ESV, the heart of Ahaz, and if you have a little number two in my Bible and a footnote, um, your Bible might have a footnote that when it says the heart of Ahaz, it actually, the Hebrew there is his heart. And it actually is referring back to the house of David. So actually, you could read this. The house of David was told, they're in league, and then the heart of David and the heart of his people is actually kind of what's going on in the Hebrew here. The heart of David and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. 
why would why would the Bible use this language here? Why would Isaiah purposely word things this way? Chapter 6 had just closed with the promise that Judah will be as a tree that is felled and burned, but the stump will remain. And then the last line is the holy seed is the stump. The holy seed is a way of referring to the remnant of the people and the fact that they are the holy, the set aside, God's chosen people. But also the holy seed many times in scripture speaks even more specifically of the the royal line. The royal line, along with a remnant of the people, will be preserved. And what we read here then, the heart of David is shaking. In other words, we already know from chapter 6 that the tree, the line of David, is going to fall. It's going to be felled and it's going to be burned, but it's going to remain. What we have here as we open up the very next chapter is the line of David, the, the heart of David, that tree. It's shaking. What God has promised, the tree is fall, going to fall and going to be burned, but will remain, it's starting. The tree is shaking. So that's why this language is being used here. And then you get into verses 3 through 9, which is God's first message to Ahaz. And in this one, we're going to have a son featured who is Sheer Joshua. And sorry if I mispronounce these names. If you just say Hebrew names confidently, nobody really knows how to pronounce them anyway. Um, so uh, starting in verse 3, it says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Joshua, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, as the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So that is the first message that God gives through Isaiah to Ahaz. And what's interesting is he purposely tells Isaiah to bring his son. And then we're given the, the Hebrew word, Sheer Jashub. His son's name means a remnant will return. What had chapter 6 just closed with? The stump will remain. The holy seed is the stump. You see Isaiah purposely making connections for you and continuing these themes that he is starting. So his son's name means a remnant will return, which is both a promise of judgment and of hope, which is really what we've seen in the entire book of Isaiah so far. The son was likely named, in fact, after the message that Isaiah was given in the vision recorded in chapter 6. Because it's very likely that his son was still pretty young. A few years have passed since the vision of chapter 6, so his son very, very, may very well have been named after that vision that he had had. And we're going to see a few different sons, by the way, whose names are prophecies. We will also see that Ahaz is, ref- is referred to multiple times as the representative of the house or line of David. The other rulers, or attempted rulers, as we will read, of Judah or Israel are usually simply referred to as the son of so-and-so. This is on purpose. This isn't Isaiah forgetting the person's name. He is doing something on purpose to make us pay attention to what is going on with the concept of a promised son, the concept of a future son, of a descendant. All of this language is being done on purpose. By referring to Pekah, 
whose name we basically only see at the very opening, just so you know, like he does have a name. Um, the rest of it, he's just referred to as the son of Remaliah. The reason that he's doing that is that Ahaz is being referred to as of the house of David, the son of David. And then you get to the, the ruler of Israel, Pekah, who, oh, what, what's his name? Just the son of Remaliah. And then we talk about um, the guy who they're trying to set up in rulership over Judah to replace Ahaz, and he's just refer, referred to as the son of Tabeel. Why, why all that language? By pointing out that they are the son of so-and-so, what Isaiah is saying is they are not a son of David. What he's purposely trying to point out to Isaiah is that the stump remains, the holy seed will be preserved, God will preserve his people, and God will keep a son of David on the throne forever. You are that line. God is with you. All these other people, just the son of Remaliah, just the son of Tabeel, not a son of David. Do you get it, Ahaz? He's constantly making purposeful points with his language here. So to this king who is worried about this coming invasion and this siege, he is even through the words of how he's referring to people, giving him hope, giving him reason to trust. Isaiah and his son then meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. And if you're wondering why on earth they're meeting there, like this is a strangely specific place for them to meet Ahaz. Why he's there is that this is the source of the water coming into Jerusalem, which what do you do when you're preparing for a siege? You make sure you have food and water. So he's inspecting the source of water coming into the city, which means he's evidencing his fear and concern that he has of the coming siege. So he's, Isaiah and his son are coming out to meet this terrified, in hyper-preparation mode, Ahaz, to give him messages from God. So to this king worried about surviving a siege and shaking with fear, God has Isaiah bring his son, whose very name contains a promise of God's preservation of his people in the royal line, so that his son can serve as a visible message of the words that are about to follow. And then in verses 4 through 6, you have the message that opens up with, Be careful, be quiet. What's interesting here is that the how these verbs are used would probably be better translated as be careful to be quiet. And the word quiet, for us, we hear that. It's like, okay, what does that mean? Like, be careful to, like, to not speak? The word quiet, as it's used throughout the rest of the Old Testament, is primarily used in a context and association with a quiet and rest that is brought through God's provision that has been established through trust in him and the blessings that he has brought. So basically what Isaiah is saying at the very start of his message is be careful to trust in God and you will find the peace and the quiet that is found in him. I don't think that this warning, by the way, is really about the water preparation. I don't think it's bad to prepare for known events that you that you know are coming. I don't think this is ultimately about the water preparation. In fact, we know from 2 Kings 16 that another thing that we have to know in the historical context of this story is that Ahaz had already or was about to send messengers with silver and gold taken from the temple to bribe Assyria to help him against the threat of Syria and Israel. He took silver and gold from God's temple to bribe the ruler of Assyria to help him. This was basically a blatant cultural way of saying, I trust you and your gods more than my God. In fact, I'm going to take gold and silver from my God's temple and use them to pay you and your gods to help me. So through this action, Isaiah is say, or Ahaz is saying, I do not trust God. So then that's why the very first thing Isaiah has said is, 
Be careful to trust. Be careful. There's also great irony in this choice by Ahaz, by the way, because Ahaz is basically bribing Assyria to do what they had certainly planned to do anyway, which was squelch any rebellion in the area. You don't think Assyria would have known that Syria and Israel were forming a league to prepare themselves to fight the Assyrian Empire? The Assyrian Empire was very well connected, had spies and different sources of information everywhere. They were currently just occupied with a couple rebellions that were going on the eastern side. They certainly would have come anyway as soon as they could to deal with this rebellion on the western front. He is also, Ahaz is also placing his trust in an empire that had already shown its desire to continue to increase its territory. So Ahaz is essentially placing his trust in an empire that will definitely turn on him. Like the fact that he didn't know that is basically he is gambling that he will be the one country that they don't eventually turn on to just absorb into their empire and put their own leadership in place. That's what he's trusting in rather than in God. So after telling Ahaz to trust God rather than Assyria, Isaiah then tells him not to be afraid of the fierce anger of Rezin and the son of Remaliah because they are but two smoldering stick ends, basically just angry little stubs. Which, are, which is another play on the tree language, which has been happening. Isaiah is saying through all this tree language, you are the tree of David and you are shaking because of two little smoldering stubs, two little stick ends, and you're shaking before them. Rezin and Pekah are planning to invade Judah and replace Ahaz with a ruler who will join their alliance. It is not certain, by the way, who this son of Tabeel refers to, which is actually kind of the point. Um, but it's likely that he is not somebody of David's line, and he may even honestly be the son of the king of Tyre. Either way, he is not a person of the line of David, and he is a threat then to the line of David. But God says in verses 7 through 9 that this will not happen. They will not conquer Jerusalem or replace the line of David. In fact, these leaders and their nations that Ahaz is afraid of will cease to be a people. Through a mirrored poem in verses 7 through 9, God, to put it simply, says what you are afraid of won't happen. If you aren't firm in your faith in me, but rather put your trust in Assyria, then you will not be firm or stand, or another way to translate the end there um, of verse 9, you will not endure at all. And then what's going on through this mirror here? You have three layers. You have outer layer, a middle layer, and then the exact center of it. Um, so I guess first, second, and then center. And what's going on with here, if you read um, 7 and then 9, 7 says, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And then 9, at the, the last two lines say, if you are not firm at, in faith, you will not be firm at all. Is basically saying that you need to put your trust in me. And then you have the middle line, which is the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And then you skip the next part, and then the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the, er, Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. So basically, it, it seems strange in this, the, the second line of each side of the mirror is like, okay, you're just telling us who's in charge of these places. Again, you have to keep in mind what's going on with the wording here. What he's saying is that these, these things that you're afraid of, these are people. And these are people who aren't of the line of David. And then at the very center, he says, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Why does he mention only Ephraim here, only Israel? There's actually not a statement about the fate of Syria. The focus on what will happen to Ephraim or Israel is because they are the northern tribes. They are God's people, just as Ahaz is part of God's people. 
They, however, Israel, have put their trust in a military alliance with Syria and have abandoned God. This misplaced trust will result in their destruction. We know, in fact, from Ezra 4 and from history, that around 65 years later, just like we read here, around 65 years later was the final in a series of deportations and importations into the area that resulted in Israel becoming a mixture of people no longer identifiable as the northern kingdom. And we know also from Ezra and from elsewhere that the northern tribes never returned to the land. The northern tribes, the area, ceased to be the northern tribes of Israel. The point being made then is that trusting in military alliances rather than in God is not going to end well for the northern tribes. So Ahaz should not think that his military alliance with Assyria rather than trusting God is going to end well for him either. That is the point of the message. And then we come to God's second message to Ahaz, which focuses around another child. This one is called Emmanuel. So you get to the end of 9, and you have this prophecy that was just given to Ahaz. Okay, in 65 years. Well, that's a long time to wait. So I think what's going on in these next couple of verses here that we read, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. I think the Lord is basically acknowledging that like, the prophecy I just gave you is a really long time. You want another sign? Ask. Ask anything. And I'll get more, you want it more short term? You want a more obvious sign? Just let me know and I'm going to give you a sign that you can trust in me. But Ahaz in 12 said, I will not ask and I will not put God to the test. We read that and we're like, oh, Ahaz is actually like being humble and being pious and like, you know, doing what he's supposed to do. And then you read the response and in 13, and he said, Isaiah said, here then, O house of David, again referring to Ahaz, but also like the whole line. Uh, o house of David, is it too little for you to weary man that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So what we think was a humble and pious response by Ahaz, we see in Isaiah's response that we obviously weren't given the tone in the translation because Ahaz was basically giving a response of dismissal and refusal. He says, I don't need a sign. I don't trust, I don't trust God anyway is essentially what's going on. And that's why Isaiah responds with, will you weary me and my God? And pay attention to what just happened there. He said, my God. It's no longer your God like it had been said before. Now it's my God. Basically what he's saying is he's, you, the house of David, the representative of the line of David, the representative of the tree of David, you are shaking and you have abandoned the Lord your God. There's this building language here of what is happening to the tree of David. In response, to this refusal for a sign. Ahaz says, or sorry, Isaiah says that the Lord will give him a sign anyway. A virgin will have a son and call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. We read in 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call, or she shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. By the time this child can refuse the evil and choose the good, which based on the wording, the words that are used here, seems to best indicate that by the, chi- by the time this child is held accountable for moral choices, which in Jewish society is around 13, He will eat curds, probably better translated butter. He will eat butter and honey, which are delicacies, because the threat is gone and the land of the two threatening kings will be deserted, leaving plenty of food available. The word translated here, by the way, as virgin, 
can mean virgin and does in some contexts, but usually means unmarried girl, young woman, or a recently married woman who has not yet had a child. There is a more specific Hebrew word for virgin that is not used here. The phrase, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, is probably best translated here as a young woman will conceive and give birth, or possibly even is pregnant and will bear. Since the word translated as shall conceive is actually an adjective describing the young girl. So the shall conceive or pregnant is actually the word there is an adjective describing the girl. And either way it's translated, the idea being presented with this prophecy is that this birth is going to happen very soon. We know, in fact, from the historical markers included in this narrative and the parallel accounts in Kings and Chronicles, that this prophecy was given about 735 B.C. Thirteen years later, when the child would be held accountable for moral choices, thirteen years later, around 722, Samaria, and the, the, which was the capital city of the northern tribes, was conquered, and many of the people deported. Syria had already been conquered ten years earlier, in 732. So Ahaz is checking water supplies, but the plans of his enemies will fail, and the food supplies will become plentiful before very long. For Emmanuel, God is with us, and Sher Jashub, a remnant, will return, or God will preserve his people. In 13 years, Samaria is going to be conquered. In 65 years, they won't even be a people. All, the, all this build up to this prophecy, and this isn't even about Christmas? Just wait. Something interesting is about to start happening with this Emmanuel and promised son idea. That's why we're going to continue past this Emmanuel prophecy. In 17 through 25, we're going to see that this Emmanuel prophecy of hope actually turns to a threat. In 17 to 25, starting in 17, we read, The Lord... Which, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. So, in, in this Emmanuel prophecy, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In verse 17, after giving the promise of the end of the threat to Syria and Israel, Isaiah suddenly turns the tables on Ahaz. He says, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days of Ephraim departed from Judah, which was the day of the splitting of the kingdom, when the northern tribes and the southern tribes split. And basically what it's saying is that God's people, who were at that, at that time most truly represented through Judah and the southern two tribes, lost ten tribes. So a great loss is what's being said. So something happened which, which has not happened since that time. And then he ends with a dramatic punch, saving the final blow till last the king of Assyria. Saving this final blow to the very end, Isaiah prophesies that what, I, what Ahaz is relying on, the king of Assyria and his power, will turn on him. In, a, in dramatic language that includes four in that day statements, as you read going past uh, verse 17 to start, 18, in that day, 20, in that day, 21, in that day, 23, in that day, just punch after punch after punch, so in, in dramatic language of four in that day statements, the Lord announces the destruction that Assyria will bring to Judah. The irony is made explicit in verse 20. It says, In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, which refers to the Euphrates River, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. 
in the great irony here, the Lord is saying that the razor that you are hiring from the river, from the Euphrates, is going to come and shave you. What you are relying on will turn on you and be your own destruction. And then what's also interesting here is that you read in verses 21 and 22, In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk they will give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Basically, you're not going to have very many animals, but you're also not going to have very many people. So you're going to be able to have an abundance, and you're going to be able to have the delicacies. Wasn't that language just used as a comfort because Syria and Israel are going to be destroyed? Now that very same language is turned into a threat, saying you are going to suffer a similar fate, and children in your land are going to be eaten curds or butter and honey because of the devastation that will come. Sure enough, we read in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that Assyria did help Ahaz this time against Syria and Israel. But later, when he asked for their help against Edom and the Philistines, Assyria turned against him. And we read in that context that they afflicted him rather than strengthening him. In 2 Chronicles 28-21, we read it simply put that Ahaz gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him, just like every other nation. He thought he was different. He wasn't. Assyria turned on him too. So we have these messages given to Ahaz. And then as we come into chapter 8, we have God's first message to Isaiah. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mer Shalel Hashbash. And I will get a reliable witness, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of uh, Jeberachiah, to attest for me. By the way, kind of an aside here, the two reliable witnesses are probably brought because Ahaz is dismissing and dismissal, or dismissive of the prophecies that are happening. So God's like, okay, Ahaz isn't believing me. I'm going to give you a sign, Isaiah, and I'm going to get two people that I can trust that are at least mostly on my side, and they're going to be reliable witnesses for the sign that's about to happen. So after two messages that were given to Ahaz, God is now going to give two messages to Isaiah. This is the first one. In the first one, God basically tells Isaiah to make it publicly known that his next son will be named Mer Shalel Hashbash. Like, that's a weird name. There's probably something going on. If that's what you're thinking, you're right. The name translates to the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. And then in verses 3 through 4, we are given an explanation of what exactly this means. In 3 and 4, it says, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Marishalel Hashbash. For before the, before the boy knows how to cry, my mother and my father, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Assyria will be carried away from before the king of Assyria. So we're given an explanation that this name, which translate as the spoil speeds and the prey hastens, this name means that before this child knows how to talk, so hastily, very speedily, before this child knows how to talk, knows how to say, my mother, my father, Syria and, Syria and Israel will both be spoiled and looted by the king of Assyria. Well, guess what? Just like the other two, we also have a time stamp that fits this just perfectly. By 732, just a couple years after this message was given to Ahaz and this message was given to Isaiah, so time for his wife to get pregnant, go through the pregnancy, have the baby, the baby's just at the age where it's almost about to talk but hasn't learned how to talk yet. By that time, Syria is completely destroyed and Israel had become a shell of itself with only the capital city and the surrounding areas remaining intact, their wealth having been taken by Assyria. 
that was 732, just a couple years after the 735 timestamp of when Isaiah is talking to Ahaz, and just 10 years later, when the child Emmanuel is held accountable for moral choices, is when Israel, who had been limping along for 10 years, is finally fully deported and destroyed. And then you come to 8, verses 5 through 15. And God gives a second message to Isaiah. And this one is again about Emmanuel, but this one just sounds different. In verses, uh, sorry, in chapter 7, verse 10, just to kind of notice purposeful language again that Isaiah is doing. In chapter 7, verse 10, we read, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And he's given a sign about an Emmanuel. And then in here, in 8.5, we read almost the same exact wording, And the Lord spoke again to me. And we're, getting, we're transitioning to something about Emmanuel. And then 8.5 through 8 is also very similar to 7.14 through 17, in that it promises an end to the threat to Syria and Israel, but then also promises that the very source of deliverance will become the source of trouble for Judah. There's a lot of mirror language that's happening here between these two sections. As we start in verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again, because this people, which you have to keep in mind where we are in the context here, he had just talked about the destruction of Israel and Syria. So the, this people in verse 6 is referring to Israel, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing against them the waters of the river, the Euphrates, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So in verse 5, we see that these people, Israel, have refused the waters of Shiloh, which is a way of saying they've refused Jerusalem's water supply, which is basically a figurative way of saying, you have refused Jerusalem. Assyria split off from Judah and Jerusalem many years past, and they never came back into alliance after that. And it's another way of saying, you have refused the royal line. You've established your own king, the son of Remaliah. Again, not even worth saying his name because we're constantly reminding um, the reader that this is not the son of David. You have refused Jerusalem and the line of David. And because they rejected this gentle Shiloh River, which came into Jerusalem, they will get the mighty rushing river of the Euphrates, which represents the king of Assyria and his might and power. And this sounds good for the deliverance of Judah until you keep reading in verse 8 which then says, and it will sweep on into Judah and overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. I think the wording here is purposeful. It says that this river will reach even to the neck. It reaches to the neck, which if you visualize that, you're not fully drowned yet, but you're getting real close. It reaches to the neck as the threat of great trouble, but trouble that does not completely drown. We're going to see later in Isaiah what this means, so I'm not going to spoil that fully here. Notice how verses 8 and 10 both end with Emmanuel or God is with us. In verse 8, we read, um, it'll reach to the neck and his outspread rings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Is that talking about this child that was born 13 years earlier? Because the thing that's being referred to actually happens well beyond that 13-year mark. So I'm not sure what's going on with that. And then you get to the, verse 10. And as you read verses 9 and 10, it says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries, which certainly would include Assyria. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, and it will not stand, for God is with us. That God is with us is the word Emmanuel in the Hebrew. It's a, it's a purposeful play on words, saying it, they will reach to your neck, 
but not overthrow you, O Emmanuel. And then in 9 through 10, it's basically broadening that out to all enemies of all time, of all nations, who are bringing a threat against the people of God. And it says, take counsel together, get all your armor on, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word and it won't stand, for God is with us. Emmanuel. Are we still talking about this Emmanuel child from chapter 7? 11 through 15. Finish God's message to Isaiah, as God strongly tells him to not fear or dread what the people do. If you read 11 through 15, it says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, Do not call conspiracy or alliance or a strong uh, combination of people. Do not call conspiracy all the people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts in him, or sorry, him you shall honor as holy. Let him fear fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. In these verses, Isaiah is told to not react as the people in Ahaz are reacting. Fear God. Don't fear these threats that you see. The Lord will become a sanctuary, or he, he will be seen as holy. And what's interesting here is that immediately flows into, and he will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. So I think the sanctuary here is a purposefully ironic statement. He will be a sanctuary, which you think, oh, that's safe. But the word also means he is holy. And if you don't put your trust in him, he will become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Which I think matches exactly later in the New Testament how these things are used about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. There is no other way. Are you going to trip over me or are you going to accept me? So these verses are saying, put your trust in the Lord and you will stand firm. Put your trust in something else and you will fall. And then as you get to um, 8 verses 16 all the way through 9 verse 7, you have Isaiah's response. And he responds by having the word of the Lord sealed, confirmed, and preserved. That's what's going on here with basically um, when he tells in 16, bind up the testimony and the teaching among my disciples. saying, preserve, preserve this word of the Lord. And he also vows to wait and to hope in the Lord who is currently hiding his face from Judah, for he knows that this is but temporary. He declares that he and his children are signs. He says in 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs, importance in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell in Mount Zion. So his sons, Merishalel Hashbaz, the spoil speeds and the prey hastens, the certainty of what's going to happen to Israel in, um, in Syria in three years. And then, um, also, share Jashub, a remnant will return. The stump, the holy seed, will return. A remnant of the people will return, and the line of David will not fail. And then in verses 19 through 21, he warns the people to not inquire or look to the idols or the false gods, which is all this language about the necromancers and stuff. Basically saying, like, I am giving you the testimony and the word of the Lord that you need. Don't go elsewhere. If you go elsewhere, you will get nothing. Because if, as if you follow the words at the end there, they have but darkness. They have no dawn, which is another way of saying they have no light, they have no truth, they have no life to what they're saying. There's no certainty in them. You get to the last couple verses, uh, starting at 22, and they look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, but they will be thrust into the thick darkness. That is being spoken of those who look elsewhere for a source of trust and for security in a word. Finally, in 9, 1 through 7, he closes by continuing this thought in a prophecy of hope. 
In fact, he turns a lot of the things that he's been saying, turns them on their head in this prophecy of hope. As you start in 9.1, think about this gloom and darkness that was just talked about, about those who seek elsewhere except for the Lord. And then you come into 9.1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And then you, you read that, and you're like, oh, two more places we have to know? What, what's going on with those, by the way, is that Zebulon and Naphtali were the northernmost tribes, and they basically served as the gateway for all the destruction and chaos that was coming through with all these empires and stuff. And right now it's Assyria. Other times it's other empires. They are the first ones who bear the brunt of all of this. But what he's saying is that there will be a time when Zebulon and Naphtali will be, will be made glorious, this way of the sea. It will be the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy of the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of the burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of the oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Man, is that good news for Naphtali and Zebulun. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, remember this whole line of David, House of David thing we keep talking about? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. One day, Isaiah is saying, war will be over. There will be peace and joy. For a child, remember how we keep talking about children a lot in this section? A child will be born who will rule with peace and justice and righteousness. He will be of the line of David and sit on the throne of David forever. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His name will be called Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Lord will do this. Wait. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Are we still talking about a person? Are we still talking about a descendant of David? Who is this child who is going to be born in the latter days, in the latter time? Who is this son of David who will sit on his throne, right all wrongs, be a light to the nations, and rule forever? Tomorrow, we celebrate this son. The son of David, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, born as a baby in Bethlehem. Ahaz and the people thought they needed deliverance or salvation from a physical threat, and they did. But these chapters, the rest of Isaiah and the whole Bible, tells us that this is not our greatest need. In chapters 7 through 39 of Isaiah, we are going to see the repeated failures of the line of David. We saw it here with Ahaz. We're going to keep seeing it with Ahaz, and then we're going to keep seeing it with Hezekiah. If you read the Old Testament, it's really depressing because you keep seeing it again and again and again and again. We are going to see repeated failures by the line of David. We are going to see repeated deliverances from physical threat only for the people to rebel and need deliverance again. Isaiah 1 through 39 is known as the book of the king. And especially in 7 through 39, we see that the people feel a need for a promised greater king, one who is of the line of David and who will deliver them. 
the constant failure, though, of the line of David, even of a good king like Hezekiah that we're going to see later, who by and large was characterized by doing what was right. Even he will fail, though, which shows that the problem is much deeper than the people think or are willing to admit. The continued rebellion eventually leads to destruction, deportation, and exile of Judah under the next empire, Babylon. Ahaz is spared from this empire, but the repeated rebellion and sin of the people leads to their deportation and exile under Babylon. And then the next empire, Persia, allows the people to go back. In Caleb's sermon series on Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, we saw that the people rebuilt and were delivered from a physical threat, again and again, and then they rededicated themselves, again, only to rebel, again, and fall into sin, again, and again. If you read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah gets pretty mad because he needs to keep putting down rebellions of the people. And that's how the Old Testament ends. The cycle of sin and rebellion, judgment and deliverance, is repeated again and again through the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament ends with the people back in the land but still rebelling, and God's presence didn't even return to the temple that they had built. No glory glory cloud came down at the end of the Old Testament. The people are waiting for God's glory. And then in Isaiah 40 through 45, what's interesting is you think about that whole storyline of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 40 and 45, we're going to see a promise of this king. It's going to morph into the promise of a servant who will bear the sin of the people and deliver them from what has been their greatest problem all along, their sin. Isaiah saw his greatest need in chapter 6. At a time when Uzziah was dying and the Persian, or sorry, the Assyrian Empire was rising, he saw a vision of the Lord seated on his throne. And you'd think right there would be, that's my greatest need, I need a king. But he realized at that moment when he saw God for who he was that Isaiah's greatest need was to be cleansed and forgiven and atoned and brought into relationship with that king. Not just to know that there is a king who is higher, but to have a relationship with that king and to be cleansed by that king. And in chapter 6, the king makes a way. He sends a seraphim with a burning coal from the altar and cleanses Isaiah to bring him back into fellowship and allow him to stand in his presence. God makes a way. Isaiah saw his need and had his need satisfied in chapter 6. One day the people will see this too. They will see that their greatest need hasn't been the physical threats. It's been their own sin. One day a virgin, literally a virgin this time, will bear a son and call his name Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. As we read in Matthew 121, Isaiah's prophecy will have a greater fulfillment. Isaiah's prophecy of the Emmanuel will have a greater fulfillment to fill an even greater need. In fact, our greatest need. Through one who is not called Emmanuel, but is Emmanuel. God with us. The glory of God that never came down to the rebuilt temple came down as a baby for us. The deliverance announced to Ahaz, a son of David, is but a picture of the greater deliverance announced to Joseph, another son of David, in the birth of a child born to save us, born to take our sins and die in our place, born to give us the same call that Ahaz received but rejected. Trust in me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the grand story of your word, how you have been delivering 
and helping and been present with your people all along, continually giving us greater signs of your presence, greater deliverances. And I thank you that you didn't stop by promising deliverance from physical threats that we face at times, but that you show us that our greatest need is our relationship with you. I thank you that you do help us with our physical needs as you helped Ahaz even in his rebellion. You saved him and the people and preserved the royal line. But at the same time, you were making a point that that wasn't their greatest need. And I pray that just as Isaiah saw in chapter 6, that we would also see what our greatest need is and that we would live in light of our need for you. I thank you that you made a way to cleanse us, that you, you saw and you knew that we could in no way make ourselves right with you. But just as you did for Isaiah, you made a way for us to be made clean as well. I thank you that you sent your son as the greatest gift ever to live and die for us. I pray all this in your name. Amen.